It is June 2nd, 1894, and that goddamn river just keeps on rising. But August Erickson will still sell you some beer from his motherfucking boat. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. We profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Kick-Ass Oregon History is a presentation of ORHistory.com and is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit ORHistory.com and click Donate. Today's podcast is brought to you by Eastside Distilling. Historian and barware, Doug Kank Crispin. The Eastside Distilling, making great-tasting, quality spirits, is their passion. Eastside Distilling has been producing high-quality, handcrafted spirits in Southeast Portland's Distillery Row since 2009. Portland Potato Vodka, Below Deck Rums, Burnside Bourbon, the house favorite of kick-ass Oregon history, and others are all available at the tasting room at 1512 Southeast 7th Avenue at Hawthorne in Portland, as well as at liquor stores across the state. So check them out at eastsidedistilling.com because things really do taste better on the east side. East side distilling. Not too long ago, one of our favorite bars at Kick-Ass Oregon History closed, likely forever. The Safari Club was a bar well-stocked with exotic, stuffed, dead animals from all over the world, eternally displayed in scenes of combat or just gazing off forever. Essentially a bar within a life-size diorama, the Safari Club in Estacado was just fucking weird. But it was a fun place to sip a cocktail or enjoy a beer, munch some tater tots while sitting next to two tigers grappling forevermore. While deeply saddened with our loss, we are truly thankful that we had the opportunity to enjoy a drink and a basket of mini corn dogs at this venerable establishment. But this loss got our resident historian a wondering. What other bars had come and went in Oregon like a stumbling drunk of the night, that we wished we'd had the opportunity at which to imbibe. And so, after many months of researching, riding, and daydreaming, we offer you, dear ass kicker, a list of olden day bars that I would like to get drunk at. And to aid us in our discovery of bars of yore, 
our friends at Eastside Distilling have graciously agreed to help teach us and you about some old-timey cocktails which bartender extraordinaire Carrie Carter competently concocted and which you can make at home. So, get a few bottles from the kitchen, array them on the table, and fuck whatever shitty plans you had for the rest of the evening. Because tonight, we're going to mix up a few drinks and give you an audio tour of our favorite Oregon old-timey bars. you dreaming of them Saturdays that came before and now you're stumbling You're stumbling onto the hard Saturday night While established in the 1840s, 20 years after that fabled coin toss, Portland was a nexus of labor for the Pacific Northwest. Men from all over the nation and even all over the world arrived in Portland looking for work. And after they found said occupation, months later, they would come back to P-Town from that job flush with cash. This tradition continued for decades. Fishermen and miners, canners and loggers, sailors and cowboys all came to Portland with a big stuffed purse and ready to have a good fucking time. Our City of Roses was well appointed with men and women to help those tired and sore looking for a good time fellows part with those hard-earned dollars. Pool rooms, whorehouses, gambling resorts, opium dens and massage parlors were all at hand in Portland, Oregon. Oh, and bars, too. A shit ton of bars. Or to use the parlance of the time, saloons. Well, I always played Russian roulette in my head. To begin our discussion, Let's examine what the scene was like outside of Portland during this era. Let's say a hopeful prospector, let's call him Peter the Prospector, left Portland and went far up the Columbia River and on up the Snake River and then up the Clearwater deep into Idaho, looking for his proverbial pot of gold in the 1861 gold rush. Thirsty after working a long day digging in the dirty, dusty, oppressive sun, Peter might stop into a little town called Slaterville, to wet his whistle. June of 1861 found a small community of five dwellings in this soon-to-be-abandoned town. So temporary was this burg called Slaterville that all of the hovels had walls that were created from cloth tarps, and of the five, one was a saloon named the Shawmut. Let's hear what Peter found. On the side, in letters done in charcoal, appears the word whiskey. This temple of Bacchus is about eight feet square and is open on the side, giving a delightful coolness to the interior. The roof is composed of two red blankets and a blue one. Inside, a whiskey barrel is observed, and in front is a counter composed of one box on top of another, decorated with three tumblers and two bottles. The patrons of this place are heard until a late hour at night singing a variety of comic and sentimental songs. Oh, how Peter the Prospector would long for the variety and class of those Portland establishments he so missed. 
For the 1860s found some very interesting drinking concerns planting themselves within the City of Roses. The Temperance Saloon promised to have whatever you wanted, whenever you wanted it, and good cigars too. The Germania Saloon featured not only the best liquors at their bar, but also boasted that the Portland, Victoria, and San Francisco papers were always to be found on the table, which would also be set with the advertised good lunch. Sutton Saloon had an attached shooting gallery for rifle and pistol practice, in addition to its bar that was well stocked with the finest liquors from San Francisco. Oh, and there was also a pleasant reading room available to the patrons of this gun range slash library slash bar thingy combination. Cause books and guns and drinks go so well together, it seems. Whew, keeping Portland weird since the 1860s. immemorial granddaddy of Portland bars was Erickson's Saloon. Established in the 1880s, Erickson's had a reputation that was literally known globally. As a reporter once penned, Not to have visited Erickson's Cafe is to have missed one of the sights of Portland. We asked our friend and fellow historian about Erickson's, Mr. Joe Streckert. Erickson's Saloon was the largest saloon in Portland, Oregon at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. It was run by August Erickson, a Scandinavian immigrant from either Norway or Sweden. We're not sure. Erickson was cagey about his origins. Uh, August, or Gus as people call him, originally opened a bar in Astoria known as the Louvre. It was probably a bit less classy than uh, the Glitter Palace that the French kings built, but he eventually moved to Portland, Oregon. And, according to one account, said, I'm going to build you buckos the biggest saloon the world has ever seen. Whether or not Erickson said that for real is an open question. But I want it to be real. I can imagine him fist-pumping excitingly, drawing up plans, and saying, look at all the booze I'm going to bring to you guys. The saloon went up. It went up on the block, which is now bordered by 2nd, 3rd, Cooch, and Burnside, in what we would now consider... Old Town. Uh, it had several different names. It was known as Erickson's, Aaron's, Erickson's Working Man's Club, Erickson's Cafe, uh, and the Nine Bar Saloon, so named because it had nine bars. The bottom floor of the saloon was where most of the business was done. Bars, food, all that kind of things. Uh, it was actually sort of progressive in that it was one of the only saloons in Portland, Oregon that allowed women to enter albeit only on the ground floor and only in special booths where they could draw privacy curtains and not be exposed to drunken men who probably had mustaches and mutton chops and the rest of that. 
On the second and third floors, there were other offerings. For example, on the second floor, there were all kinds of informal gambling rooms and entertainments. Erickson offered a lot in addition to just booze and bigness. He had a pipe organ. He had a ladies' orchestra. He had stages with dancing girls. He had Portland, Oregon's first ice cream parlor and an on-site post office. The third floor was all cribs, rooms where men could pass out drunk, stay the night, or if one of the various ladies in the orchestra dancing on stage caught her eye, have her sew a button on his trousers. Seamstress was the popular euphemism of the time. A nickel would buy a giant schooner of Henry Weinhardt's beer at Erickson's, because what the fuck else are you going to serve at the largest and most palatial saloon on the West Coast? Also called the Temple of 10,000 Delights, Erickson's saloon did all that it could to live up to that well-deserved moniker. 300 men could stand at the bar. Gus offered a free buffet that he called the Dainty Lunch, which could consist of sausages, roast chicken, pork and beef, Scandinavian cheeses, sourdough bread, and a house-made mustard of some renown that ran very hot, and even crocks of lutefisk at certain times of the year. And to accompany your crazy Scandahoovian repast, the Bohemian Ladies' Orchestra was a huge draw. Other acts were common too, as Erickson's featured live music every day from the afternoon into the wee hours of the morning. And if you happened to stop by before the band had set up, there was an automatic organ available that you could put your coins in and have it play melodious music. Gus did everything he could to take your money, and he did a very good job at helping you happily party. One Sunday morning in 1905 found August Erickson himself taking the stage and announcing, Some people here said they came down to sing and talk a little, and would the gentlemen please listen quiet and respectful manner, please. Erickson's place was packed at 10 a.m., the cash registers ringing, but the raucous orchestra's playing was quickly replaced with singing evangelicals, and the assembled men drinking their beers solemnly removed their hats. After Gus left the stage, Mr. Reverend Snyder climbed the dais and delivered a sermon to the throng entitled, Be Strong and Show Thyself a Man. The preacher professed themes that ranged from manhood, respect for women, love for little children, and the wisdom of being decent, and reminded the wandering, drunkard boys of their saddened mothers they had left at home. He addressed the various vices of the establishment and exhorted the men, Don't you remember the man who befriended the woman of Magdala? 
Don't you remember that he is your savior? While essentially standing on the stage of a whorehouse, with the proprietor accommodating the discourse. A prayer was held, another godly song was sung, and the evangelicals departed Erickson's saloon, leaving a few of the drunken, hardened men in tears. I narrow my eyes like a coin slot, baby, let her ring, let her ring. And there was a trough. We can't forget the trough. You didn't have to get up from your beer and go find the pisser at Erickson's. No. Gus had thought of everything. There was a porcelain urinal that ran down the length of the bar, so you could just pull out your pecker, pissing profusely, while you proceed with pounding your pilsner. Right at the bar. August Erickson didn't want anything to distract his manly customers from spending their money at his most famous of Portland saloons. Let's fast forward a few decades and pay close attention while Carrie Carter shows us the business behind the bee's knees. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin from orhistory.com. And I am at the Eastside Distilling Tasting Room in Portland, Oregon, with Carrie Carter, bartender extraordinaire of Eastside Distilling as well. Thanks for joining us today, Carrie. Good afternoon. <laughs> and you're going to take us on a classic cocktail tour, correct? We're going to go on a classic cocktail voyage. Um, I've picked out a couple of my favorite classic cocktails. You've sent me a few of your favorite classic cocktails. And one of the things that I found amongst most of these cocktails that we looked at is a lot of them have gin and a lot of them have bourbon. You don't see a lot of vodka. You don't see a lot of tequila. It's just kind of the standards. Gin, bourbon, and rum. Excuse me. Some rum, too. And we've got a lot of cocktails from kind of the latter part of the 19th century and then one from Prohibition. So all pretty early stuff, yeah? Yes. Well, sweet. I mean, I'm excited. Well, I mean, one of the things to consider in, you know, pre-prohibition era, 1900s, etc. It's like, they were also drinking a lot of distilled spirits that were strong as shit. And so to mix it with something to kind of dilute the flavor was in everybody's best interest. But I'm sure in Portland, they weren't doing a lot of that here. I don't know if they were doing this, so it's of this kind of Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to this segment of our podcast. I'm a little afraid, though. <laughs> As your club soda keeps going. Um, I'm a little f afraid that I'm going to get kind of fucked up. You're going to get kind of fucked up. Yeah, well, all right, let's do it. Let's You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with the Bee's Knees. Okay. Um, the Bee's Knees was the first on the list. That, this drink actually came to my attention about a year or two ago. I was dating a guy years ago, and he came in to see me at work when I was bartending. He's like, Carrie, I want a Bee's Knees. And I'm like, what? What the fuck's a bee's knees? And he's like, oh, it's a classic cocktail and it's got honey and gin in it. I'm like, that sounds disgusting, but I'll try it. So a bee's knees is uh, gin, lemon juice, and honey. It's pretty simple. Um, Eastside Distilling has a yet-to-be-released gin. We're waiting on labeling. The recipe's been approved, but you're going to be the first person to actually try it. Woohoo! Awesome! <laughs> That's fucking kick-ass. So here is our, you can see this 
bottle of hooch, unlabeled. That is fantastic. <laughs> I wrote gin on it that. in Sharpie, like silver gold Sharpie. <laughs> <laughs> just in case, just in case. Um, so it's going to be two ounces of our gin. And two ounces of gin. I haven't even tried this yet. But it's liquor, so it's got to be safe, right? Yeah, hell yeah. Smell that. Wow. It's really floral. It smells nice. In the meantime, I'm chilling a cocktail glass. I've got a martini glass with some ice cubes in it, some soda water to kind of get the, the glass cold while I'm making the drink. This one has two ounces of gin. I've got some honey. It calls for honey syrup. I didn't have time to make honey syrup, but honey will work just as well. Honey syrup itself is kind of like a diluted version of honey. You can cook it down on the stovetop with some water and some extra sugar. Loosen it up a little bit. And then it's going to have, let's do a half ounce of lemon juice in here. So the theory behind this cocktail, according to Lore, is um, that the honey itself and the lemon juice would mask the flavor of the gin. The gnarly ass bathtub gin in Prohibition. The gnarly ass bathtub gin you had in Prohibition versus the classy gin you're going to consume today. Awesome. That the OLCC does not get it. The, the OLCC will have no problem with this in a matter, in a mere matter of days. So what I'm going to do is put this all together. My glass is now chilled. Honey, lemon, gin. Strain it into the glass. Looks good. Looks really good. It's honey color. That's positive, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then I'm gonna garnish it with a lemon. And that is a bee's knees. It's more than rain. That falls on our parade tonight. At the northwest corner of 4th and Washington, just up from today's Rialto Pool Room and the Jack London Bar, was the location of our next bar we wish we could have gotten fucked up at, Kunkel and Hawk, which is a weird fucking name to be sure. The bar was established and already well known when it was dinged and fouled up by the Great Flood of June of 1894. But Daniel Kunkel and Eugene Hawk weren't about to let a deluge of biblical proportions get them down. In fact, they twisted and transformed the natural disaster into a fabulous marketing meme. The saloon essentially became a memorial to the flood and prominently displayed a huge painting on one wall taken from one of the ever-present photographs of the bar when it was submerged by high water. At the time of the Great Flood, the saloon was somewhat celebrated for being the well-known location where a two-foot fish was caught inside the bar. Another smaller specimen was also caught in the bar, and that fish was entrapped in alcohol and preserved as a souvenir for all to see. But Kunkel and Hawk was no common skullduggery. The walls were finely frescoed, and only the purest brands of whiskey were purveyed. The bar counter was constructed from black walnut made by the Stewart and Winslow Company, and at a 38-foot length, 
was reported to be one of the longest and one of the finest bars in Portland. It was felt that there was not a better equipped drinking resort in the city, and three spacious private rooms were available to customers who preferred a little privacy and discretion. Above the saloon was where the gambling took place, and the parlors were described as being quite bon ton, or a high-toned affair. Faro, roulette, and craps were the games of choice. Kunkel and Hawk, a fancy-ass bar themed around the commemoration of the vengeful and wet wrath of God. Sounds like a fucking perfect watering hole to us, dear ass-kicker. Our next cocktail was popular in the 1800s. Carrie Carter concocts the Knickerbocker. Okay, we're gonna do the Knickerbocker cocktail next. I liked the idea of the Knickerbocker cocktail because it kind of sounded like a variation on like a very fun, fruity summer cocktail. It's got lemon juice, it's got raspberry, it's got orange, it's got rum. Um, again, a very popular spirit. Um, in pre-prohibition years. Um, I'm going to start with two ounces of Eastside Distilling Silver Rum, below deck silver rum, pardon me. I'm eyeballing it this time. <laughs> I like your eyeball, <laughs> I may be a little blind. Do, do not get your vision checked, please. Um, we're going to do half an ounce. Uh, it, it calls for raspberry syrup or raspberry liqueur. I'm going to use Chambord, which is a raspberry liqueur. It's very delicious. Gives a really nice raspberry color. As far as raspberry liqueurs go, I like Chambord personally the best because it's one of the more true to raspberry flavors than other raspberry liqueurs on the market. Um, we're going to do a half an ounce of fresh lemon juice. I'm squeezing a lemon right now. And we're going to do a half an ounce of orange curacao which is an orange liqueur. Look at that color. Isn't that pretty? Beautiful. You used to have hair that color. I did. Raspberry colored hair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so same deal again. I've got a cocktail glass chilling over here. Served martini style. the Knickerbocker was a pretty popular drink and I don't know why it was ever lost in popularity because I want to go someplace and order this and it being Portland when I ask for a Knickerbocker and someone says I don't know what that is I can pull the oh what you don't know what a Knickerbocker is <laughs> really <laughs> oh well okay so chill glass pretension aside not really not really <laughs> Here is the Knickerbocker cocktail. It'll probably knock your knickers off. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> that looks real good. That is really good. Holy moly. I think that I think that this drink traditionally would probably or at least not traditionally, but today would probably be served with vodka. But I like the rum. Yeah, absolutely. Because I don't think there are many rum drinkers here in Portland as there are vodka or whiskey drinkers, so it's a really nice alternative. <laughs>
One of our favorite Shanghaiers of note was a fellow by the name of Jim Turk. But Turk's storied crimping in Portland and Astoria is not the focus of our current discussion. No, this review revolves around a bar that Turk opened in Pendleton. Turk opened the Big Bonanza Saloon on East Court Street with his buddy Bill Daly and Bill's Japanese wife. Not much is known about the establishment, but enough has survived in the record to catch our attention at Kick-Ass Oregon History. The place had the reputation of being one of the known establishments in Pendleton that would sell whiskey to the nearby Umatilla Indians. In addition, the Big Bonanza had a boxing ring in the bar, and Turk and Daly would stage matches between the owners or have Daly's eight-year-old Japanese-American twin boys battle it out for the crowd's enjoyment. The Big Bonanza Saloon in Pendleton, a sheep herder, cow puncher, goat roper, all-around shit-kicking extraordinaire bar is absolutely an establishment we are sad to have missed. Next, Carrie Carter teaches us to construct one of her favorite cocktails, the Cuba Libre. Cuba Libre is one of the easiest drinks in the entire world. Um, it is a rum and coke with lime juice. I mean, that's it. It that's is it. a rum and coke, right? Yeah. The only thing that makes, well, the actually, the difference between a rum and coke and a Cuba Libre is the lime juice. So if I went into a bar and ordered a Cuba Libre, would they just give me a rum and coke with a fucking lime? Probably. Yeah, they would. Yeah. So I could pull some sneaky ass shit. Well, and I've also been into bars personally where I've asked for a Cuba Libre because Cuba Libre was my grandma's favorite drink. And she would tell me stories about going to bordellos and seeing burlesque shows and like, you know, post-World War II, she was drinking Cuba Libres. That was her favorite drink. Um, also, you know, again, repopularized after World War II because then overseas we're drinking the Bacardi. Um, we're gonna use below deck silver rum. It's, we're gonna do two ounces of below deck silver rum. I'm doing it in a giant glass. Fucking A. Yeah. I've already added a half an ounce of fresh squeezed lime juice. And I'm gonna top it off with Mexican Coca-Cola. What's the difference between Mexican Coca-Cola and ghetto-ass American Coca-Cola? Uh, pure cane sugar versus high fructose corn syrup. There we go. You can find you can find the real Coca-Cola. I call it real Coca-Cola. The Mexican Coca-Cola in the glass bottles. Uh, a lot of places in town, New Seasons carries it. A lot of bars carry it. A lot of bottle shops carry it. Um, Cash and Carry has it. Right yeah. Or you can go to your friendly neighborhood Mercado, too. See, si, es verdad. Look how good that looks! Ooh, that's lovely. Yeah. Or, for somebody who's unfamiliar with a Cuba Libre, you could blow some minds and be like, I'm going to make Cuba Libres, who's in? <laughs> <laughs> and your unknowing friends will be like, oh, that sounds so exotic, me. <laughs> The nice part about the Mexican Coca-Cola oh, in this, delicious. it's great, yeah. Especially like when I was talking about how I like the vanilla aftertaste in this, really complements the, the cane sugar Coca-Cola yeah. out of a glass bottle yeah. versus out of plastic or aluminum. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed researching the bars and saloons and old-timey cocktails for this podcast. But it brought up the question, did 
big burly ass, big old scratchy bearded P-Town yesteryear chokermen and fallers really drink fanciful gaudy cocktails, like in their cork boots and sweat-stained plaid shirts? Of course, in many of the accounts of old-timey bars in Oregon, there isn't much said about what was drank, besides beer and straight liquors. In fact, looking at the sources and the lack of the oat cocktail scene, I begin to wonder if purveying of these mixed drinks occurred at all. This was a town full of laboring loggers and sailors and miners and sheep herders and canners. They were in town with a pocket full of cash, just off of some hellacious seasonal backbreaking work, work like most of us can't even imagine. They wanted to blow all that newfound dough, eat a big old plate of food, whore around a bit, and generally get obliterated for a while, and finally have a chance to relax and also blow off some of that goddamn steam. Did they really want some frou-frou drink with muddled mint when they dashed into town from some backwoods, filthy, shitty hardtack outfit and bellied up at Fred Fritz's bar? There is evidence to support the concept that there was indeed a thriving market for what we think of as cocktails in rough-and-tumble Portland, Oregon. Even in some of the most shit-kicking, laboring man's class environments. Take, for example, an advertisement in the Oregonian for Macmillan and Kester cocktail mixers from September of 1868. The ad features small descriptions on the San Francisco firm's cocktail bitters and essence of Jamaican ginger. Just the fact that these accoutrements were marketed at all in our local daily suggests that there was a desire in Oregon for said accompaniments. In addition, as we all know by now, Portland was a port of global commerce. The sailors that ventured from this harborage traveled to cosmopolitan cities all over the world. They would be familiar with exciting new signature cocktails from watering holes they frequented in New York, London, Paris, and yes, even Shanghai. It is a given that if they enjoyed a Manhattan in a New York City bar on Broadway in the 1860s, that they would eventually come back to Portland and ask a locally sourced mixologist to create the same. This city may seem to our present selves to have been very geographically isolated, but in actuality, Portland was in many ways quite sage and worldly, especially in the ways of getting fuckered up. Consider another argument for the prodigious acceptance of the cocktail in an 1877 advertisement. The lemon peel in a cocktail sometimes trips a man up, but not when it's made from noble whiskey, which will always strengthen and invigorate. The sole agents for the noble are Millard and Van Shaner, 39 Front Street. But perhaps the most convincing supporting evidence of a thriving cocktail culture in 1800s Portland was found in a first-hand account of the mixing of drinks at the then-storied Mandu bar of them all, Erickson's Saloon. I remember avidly the delicious concoctions Erickson's accomplished bartenders could conjure from the mysterious-looking bottles at the back of the bar, bottles that teased my imagination by their odd shapes, suggestive names, and attractive colors. That old-time Manhattan cocktail with its genuine maraschino cherry on a toothpick and an ensnaring perfume. On frosty mornings, there was a certain chill chaser at the making of which one of his drink dispensers was a wizard. A thin glass, 
delicate almost, half full of boiling water, a silver teaspoon of powdered sugar, a generous modicum of gurgling amber-colored Jamaican rum, a touch of lemon peel, and the merest dash of nutmeg made a drink that was 100% efficient, stimulating, and intoxicating, a drink that would have thawed Paul Bunyan in his memorable winter of the blue snow. And who could forget on Christmas holidays the bowl of Tom and Jerry, the golden sheen of the jolly, frothy mixture that mellowed your mood, put blarney on your tongue and enraptured your senses and enthralled your spirit, until the whole world was truly a place of goodwill to men. Give me another reason to get out of bed. Blue skies shining my So there you have it. Loggers and cocktails, dear ass kicker. Loggers and cocktails. As we continue our storied cocktail voyage, let us discuss one of our favorites at Kick-Ass Oregon history, the Manhattan. One of the things I have found with people who drink Manhattans is people who drink Manhattans are very picky about how they drink Manhattans. How is that? I don't, I have no idea. Like, for me, I've made enough, I don't know if it's because I've made enough of them, I make them how I like them to taste. It just seems like it's real hard to fuck up a Manhattan. Like, it's a few simple ingredients. Maybe some people are heavy-handed on some versus others. Maybe it's preference of bourbon. I don't, I don't know how you could fuck up a Manhattan, personally. Um, I am chilling. We're going to do a Manhattan straight up. Um, traditional Manhattan, not a perfect Manhattan, not a, any other type of Manhattan. We're doing a standard Manhattan straight up. And again, this is a drink from late 1800s. Yes, and rumor, I mean, there are a couple, there are a couple different stories regarding the history of the Manhattan, because you were telling me about a couple of them, and I've done a little research on them, too, and my understanding, and from what I've read in the past, is that the Manhattan recipe was actually created in Manhattan at a private club for a private party, specifically, and hence the Manhattan was born. Um, was I at that party? No. No. So I drank these drinks? Yeah. yeah. And we also serve them at our Kick-Ass Oregon History Happy Hour. <laughs> Kick-Ass Oregon Happy Hour, right. Always yeah. beside distilling ben, Burnside bourbon. Exactly. Been there, had that Manhattan. And by the way, you do a really great job on it. Well, thank you. You're thank welcome. You. I take pride in my Manhattans. You do a great job. See, but again, it's an easy it's an easy drink to make. I think it's you a, just have a couple of ingredients. You don't need a blender. No, and I think a lot of people... I think a lot of people are intimidated by to make the Manhattan just based on what I've said. It's like people are either love them or hate them, like how they're prepared. And it's just like, just drink it. It's a I don't drink. think you should overthink it. No. You shouldn't overthink it. So it's a I'm fucking Manhattan. It's a fucking Manhattan. So I'm chilling a martini glass again. For this, for, for this exercise, we'll call it the Manhattan glass. And what I'm going to do is put in sweet vermouth. I'm going to do about a half an ounce of sweet vermouth. Mmm. About a half an ounce. We're gonna do. I like to do three dashes of bitters in mine. There are tons of different types of bitters on the market. I'm gonna use the most popular, worldwide, recognized uh, 
Agnostura bitters. So I just put in three dashes of bitters. I have a half ounce of sweet vermouth. I'm chilling a glass. I'm gonna use our gentleman's choice. Do you wanna use our Burnside bourbon or do you wanna use our double barrel bourbon? Oh wow. Yeah. I think we should use a double barrel just because okay. that's fancy okay. shit. We're gonna use the Eastside Distilling Double Barrel Bourbon, which is our our Burnside bourbon that has gone through a, an additional aging process in an Oregon oak barrel, which changes the flavor profile. It's fantastic. It's top, top shelf. It's top, top shelf. So we're going to two ounces of this. Or, you know, three or something. <laughs> oh. I, don't, I don't understand why anybody would hate my Manhattans. I mean, I put so much booze in them. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm trying to stay true to the recipe here. So what I'm going to do with this is, while our glass is chilling, some people stir, I shake this gently. Not for very long. I'm going to stop chilling my glass. So now that we've got our maraschino cherry in the glass, all the ingredients are chilled, I'm going to strain this into the glass. Look at that color. Beautiful. Look at that rich caramel color. That's one good looking drink. That is. Now we have ourselves a double barrel bourbon Manhattan. Oh wow, that smokiness really comes through. That's great. From the bourbon? That's great, yeah, absolutely. The earthy elements, of course, from the bitters. A little extra splash of bitter. Oh, that's there. nice. Yeah, it is. Yeah. That's really good. Thanks. Delicious Manhattan, and I make a lot of them. Thank you. You do make Thanks. a lot of them. Yeah. For our final bar of Oregon Yore that we wish we could have gotten drunk at, we're going to head to Washington County and visit a bar that was active not too terribly long ago. Earthquake Ethels. Called the capital of the dozen hustle hotspots in the Portland metropolitan area, the Beaverton nightclub on Southwest Cedar Hills Boulevard was also the largest discotheque in Oregon. In 1978, the club averaged about 22,000 patrons a week, three dance floors, an insane light show, a $250,000 sound system, attractive mini-skirted waitresses that gesticulated and gyrated at the bar as they waited for the uncomfortable-looking tuxedo-clad bartenders to mix the drinks. Quake Ethels was christened after a famous dancer of the same name. Ethel Hodgkins was a performer in San Francisco in the early 20th century. She acquired her nom de guerre after the 1906 earthquake that shook that famous city, as Ethel was dancing on stage the exact moment the earthquake struck. To that end, the owners of the Beaverton Disco insisted that the 1977 statue in the TriMet Transit Mall, called Kavinikt, the art that former Mayor Bud Clark exposed himself to, was modeled after the original Ethel's body. The marquee performance at the Beaverton Disco, besides all the latest disco hits on vinyl, was a three to seven minute sound and light demonstration that was dubbed the Earthquake. During this audio-visual presentation, several layers of sound, like popular music and a simulated thunderstorm, would be overlapped to demonstrate the club's 10,000 watt sound system 
an accompanying mind-blowing 17,000 lights. The simulated earthquake, described as seeming to be capable of lifting a person off the floor, would tremble and tremor the club several times throughout the evening. A reporter described the scene. Screens came out of the ceiling, lights flash nightmarishly, sound thunders all around, shaking the ice in your drink, and customers are treated to a seven-minute film production of psychedelic visual effects spliced in with cuts from old movies. When the earthquake was introduced, neighbors of the club were not fucking pleased. It was bad before, but now it's just a constant boom, boom, thumpity thump, said Renee Robbins. And even the kiddies got in on the Beaverton dance scene. Ethel's had an active youth program, too. A teen disco was held on Saturday afternoons, where young pimply people learned the latest moves in between munching on onion rings, french fries, and tremor burgers. Oh, the 70s. But the writing was on the wall for Earthquake Ethels. While the slow death of the genre began on Disco Demolition Night on July 12, 1979, in Chicago, it took a little while for the fad to end in Oregon, baby. And by the mid-1980s, Earthquake Ethels played recorded big band music seven nights a week. The Andrea True Connection and Wild Cherry were replaced by Tommy Dorsey and Nat King Cole. All the flashing trippy lights and thumpity thumps fucking with your head a little man? How about a brief escape to the Ward 8? The Ward 8, it's pretty much a classic whiskey sour, but it's got a little bit more sweetness added to it. Instead of using a traditional sour mix, which you can buy at the store, which is, again, a lot of people are anti-high fructose corn syrup. A lot of the sour mixes on the market have high fructose corn syrup in them. Uh, a good way to make your own high fructose, or your, your own high fructose corn syrup, your own sour mix is uh, just muddle some lemons, some limes, add a little bit of simple syrup or sugar to it. Um, for this one, we're gonna do, I'm gonna do lemons and simple syrup. So I, this one's just served in a regular glass. There's no shaking involved. Um, I'm going to do two ounces. We're going to do the regular Burnside bourbon on this one. I think the Burnside bourbon is going to be a good complement to this one because it doesn't have as much smokiness or oakiness as the double barrel. So we'll complement the, the sweetness of the grenadine that we're going to add to it. So two ounces of Burnside bourbon. We'll do some fresh squeezed lemon. So this is three quarter ounce lemon juice. I'm going to take like a half a lemon and juice it directly into the drink without getting myself in the eye. Danger! Danger! If there was, if there was something called the klutzy bartender, I would probably be it. <laughs> You've seen me in action, Doug. Come on. I have absolutely, but you can't drink. Where did I put my bottle opener? God damn it, did I lose it again? Where's my juicer? What? Yeah. Anyway. There's some seeds in there. They That's fine. They won't kill you. Um, so then I did three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice. Oh, I'm going to do three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup. Ding dong. 
a dash of grenadine, which contrary to popular belief is not cherry syrup, it's actually pomegranate syrup. It's just the same color. Again, the shit you learn on kick-ass. People <laughs> assume it's cherry, it's not. Um, and an orange slice for garnish, which I don't have any orange slices, so we're gonna garnish it with the extra cherries I got. <laughs> and an umbrella! Look at that, looks tropical. It really does. That's the Ward 8. The Ward 8, it that's the like Ward some, 8. Like, crazy psycho ward at the Oregon State I know, Hospital. that's like it's, when I was... I it was doesn't think, look so cheery. I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful. That's exactly what I was envisioning was the Oregon State Hospital when I was reading Ward 8. That's sweet, isn't it? It really is. Such a picturesque place. Here's a picturesque cocktail yeah. for your vacation, for your home away from home. <laughs> Let's put some more ice in here. Wow, that looks great. Yeah, so it's pretty much a whiskey sour... With a little bit of grenadine in it. This is a neostir. stir. Ooh, a little bit. Yeah, because that lemon juice is right there on the top. Right up on top. The <laughs> grenadine sunk it right to so the bottom. Pretty. It was so layered, you know? Give us it. What do you think? Ooh. Yeah. I may, have been, I may have been a little bourbon heavy on that one. Ooh. <laughs> that's, that's definitely a sweet drink. That is. That's a sweet tropical cocktail. Oh, wow. In examining the bars of yesteryear, we get a chance to consider our peculiar position presently. Even in my own drinking age lifetime, I've had the opportunity to partake in alcoholic drinks at institutions that gave me a glimpse into the character of yesteryear. And sadly, I've also had the opportunity to watch many of these old-timey bars disappear. Countless awesome aged bars are gone, never to return again. Sam's Hofbrau at PSU was essentially cafeteria-style dining with a bar in it. Patrons would dine on delicious metal-trade meatloafs and drink pints of Henry Weinhardt's beer. In the 1990s, it was the decades-old Calico Cat, home to a lactating stripper. Both the dancer and the bar are gone now and will never return. Even Digger O'Dell's had an old-timey charm, a magnificent bar, and a storied ghost to boot. But today, we can still find a few of these gems that survived the last few decades and haven't been completely removed, remodeled, or rebranded. Mary's Club, of course, comes to mind, a classic Roy Keller strip club that still has a few flashes of what it must have been like in the 1970s when the dancers battled with city officials over free speech and bare boobies. Holman's off of East Burnside has a wonderful feel of a days gone by era, a hard drinking bar that refuses to abandon its weathered charm. Jake still has a fucking piss trough beneath its bar. It's really, really hard to beat a piss trough for old timiness. So this podcast today is really a call to action, like a get off of your ass moment. Go visit these aged watering holes before they disappear, like the fate that befell the Safari Club. See them while you still can. But also, fear the appearance of deep pocket investors with big ideas who buy the place up, like happened at Kelly's Olympian, and removed almost all trace of its battered but illustrious past. Have a sense of urgency, dear ass kicker. Get out there and experience these establishments and revel in the time you'll spend in the Naugahyde booth. Take it all in as you sip strong drinks and order food that is fried and positively comes in baskets. Because those fuckers will go away. And once the inevitable happens, all you will have left to cling on to is your memory of the most wicked hangover you ever earned. That's right, earned at that fabled Oregon institution. 
the old-timey bar. I got a bad liver and a broken heart. Yeah, I drunk me a river since you told me apart. And I don't have a drinking problem, except when I can't get a drink. Wish you'd have known her, we were quite a pair. She was sharp as a razor and soft as a prayer. So welcome to the continuing saga. She was my better hand, and I was just a dog. And so here I am, slumped. I've been chipping, I've been chomped on my stool. So buy this fool some spirits and libations. It's these railroad station bars. And all these conductors and the porters. And I'm all out of Thank you for listening, Ass Kicker, and be on the lookout for future podcasts by our crew. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was brought to you by Eastside Distilling. It was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kent Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Check out our website at orhistory.com. There, you can subscribe to the podcast and have it delivered through RSS directly to your device. You can sign up for our exciting Oregon History events, pick up Oregon History merchandise, get a list of songs featured in each podcast, receive extra insights into podcast topics, and read of our adventures as Oregon's rock and roll historian. Kick-Ass Oregon History is supported by listeners like you, and we're looking to do more. Soon, we will ask your help to fund a new big project. In the meantime, share the podcast with your ass-kicking friends, and stay tuned for our announcement. You can also support the podcast today. Go to orhistory.com and click Donate. Follow us on Twitter at Oregon underscore History, You can also like us on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kent Crispin. You'll just give him another excuse to take his clothes off and express himself. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass. I just can't drink no more. Cause it don't douse the flames That are started by dames It ain't like asbestos It don't do nothing but rest is assured And substantiate the
So I'm gonna do a whiskey daisy. There's a brandy, there's a daisy for everything. They're never the same ingredients from what I've been reading. Like there's a gin daisy, there's a rum daisy, and there's a whiskey daisy. And the whiskey daisy has got, um, is three ingredients. And we're gonna be real quick in and out, but I'm gonna do the Burnside bourbon. Um, it's Orgite, which is an almond sweet syrup, um, which you can get, again, at cash and carry. Coffee shops have it. I mean, it's, you can make it at home. It's like a sim almond simple syrup and simple syrup, which is just sugar water. So I think with this one, I'm going to go, I love the, the almond flavor in this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a little heavier on that than I would the simple syrup because, I mean, it's just two competing sugar products. Let's see. That looks good. We'll do about that much. It's about half an ounce of Orgite. And simple syrup. That's gonna be a sweet treat. Ooh, that smells great. The almonds really uh, complementary with the the bourbon. You can see that it's very syrupy. It is. It's a whiskey daisy. I'm gonna gently slide that over to you. Let's give it a sip. Oh wow, that almond is right there. Oh, is it really delicious. good? So nutty. Yeah. Oh damn, that's good. That's really good. That's really good. I like it. And I don't even feel like I felt like I was gonna put too much of the almond in there, but I don't think I did. I think it's a really good balance. That needs to be a special with Jack London. Yeah, I think it does. Well, Carrie Carter, thank you so much for My having pleasure. us down to uh, get fucked up with all these cocktails. And, yeah, let's uh, drink. Rest, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks again. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, you're welcome. All Thanks right. for coming down. You bet. ORhistory.com